You may have noticed this morning that we only sang two songs. Don't worry. We saved some songs to sing after we talk about joy. So be ready. And at the end of the service, an important announcement that we need to make. So uh, just to build your suspense. Hey, we are actually made smiling. There is what's called 4D technology that can go in the womb and actually see babies smiling. And they can see them smiling hundreds of times in the womb. And now you and I probably know that when the babies come out, especially when they're newborns and they're sleeping, they still have these random smiles. You ever see that random? And you just wonder, what are they thinking about? What must be a good dream. University of California at Berkeley did a longitudinal study, 30 years, where they grabbed an old yearbook, they measured the smiles, and then from those pictures were able to make predictions about the people in the yearbook. They could predict uh, how they would do on standardized tests. They could predict how their marriage and friendships would have longevity. They could predict how they would do in their careers, how they would advance. What they discovered was the wider the smile, the higher the scores. Then, get this, 2010, Wayne State University took a year of baseball cards, 1952, and they measured the smiles on the baseball cards. What their research discovered was that those players who did not smile for their card lived an average of 72.9 years. Those players that did smile for their baseball cards lived an average of 79.9 years. What do you think of that research? Perhaps Anne Sexton, the poet, was onto something when she wrote, the joy that isn't shared dies young, or perhaps younger. Waterstone, how's your smile? We're preaching through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. Jewish pilgrims would sing them as they walked up to the temple to meet with God. There's unique characteristics to these Psalms. They're short, they're easy to memorize, and they're memorable. You don't need words, you don't need songbooks. You could just sing them as you walked with your family or your village up to Jerusalem. The other unique feature about these Psalms is each one captures a facet of relationship with God. Each one, something about what it means to connect with God. Today, well, let's read it, 126. See if you can pick out the word that is occurring four times. Four times in this song. It's what this song is about. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. 
The word that occurs four times and what this song is about is joy. Joy. So today, we'd like to ask two basic questions. What is joy? And second, where do we get it? Where do we buy a pound of it? We need joy. Let's talk about what joy is. In the psalm, we said it occurs four times. Three times, it's a particular Hebrew word. And you see it these three times in those verses. It's the word renan. And it's always in a phrase, either songs of joy or shouts of joy. This particular word for joy means an outward expression of joy. So, what is it about singing? Singing is different than saying. Augustine said, when you sing, you pray twice. Shakespeare was captured by singing. And he once wrote, in Much Ado About Nothing, it is, not strange, is it not strange that sheep's guts, now you remember the original guitar strings were sheep guts stretched. Is it not strange that sheep's guts should hail souls out of men's bodies? There's something about singing that's able to express a full heart of joy, of lament. I was at the Rockies game with my good friend Scott Holtz, and uh, the Rockies beat the Cubs as well that night. Boom. And uh, it was a great night and a great evening, but there's one thing I remember. I've been to hundreds of sporting events. I have never heard four people sing the national anthem as loud as I heard that night, right behind me. Four people in their 70s. It was one of those things where I didn't want to like turn around and look, so out of the corner of my eye, I look, and this one guy, his head is back. There's tears coming out of his eyes. And then as they're sitting down, we're sitting down, he said, it gets me every time. Full heart. Clear eyes. Joy. That's expressed. But where does that joy, for shouts of joy, for songs of joy, where does it come from? That's the other Hebrew word. In verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. This is the Hebrew word simha. Now I know you want to say that word. Say it. Speak Hebrew with me. Simha. Say it. You say it. All right. You just spoke in tongues. But we won't, we won't tell anybody. Simha. That's a joy that means an inner delight caused by relationship with someone or something exceptional. Think about it. I'm going to say that again. An inner delight caused by relationship with someone or something exceptional. It's what drives the shouts and the songs of joy because you have relationship with someone who's exceptional. Someone who has done great things for us. And we all know that doing comes from being. So this being who's producing joy, who's the joy giver, he must be joyful. In fact, I would argue with Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, longtime philosophy professor at USC, that God is the most joyful being in the universe. In his great book, the Divine Conspiracy. I wanted to read a longer quote. Those of you who are guests this morning, we don't normally read long quotes like this, but this was so good. You have to hear it. 
we should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that He is full of joy. Undoubtedly, He is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of His love and generosity is inseparable from His infinite joy. All the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. While I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man named Matthew Dickinson took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches before, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise, the sea and land opened up to us, and I stood in stunned silence and walked slowly towards the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes, like and unlike it, in this and billions of other worlds, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through His being. It is perhaps strange to say, <laughs> but suddenly I was extremely happy for God. And I thought I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness is and of what it might have meant for Him to look at His creation and find it very good. You know, we pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them, which He constantly enjoys. This is His life. And then Willard closes with this majestic paragraph. So we must understand that God does not love us without liking us through gritted teeth, as Christian love sometimes is thought to do. Rather, out of the eternal freshness of His perpetually self-renewing being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being on it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstintingly affectionate regard of God toward all His creatures is the natural outflow of what He is to the core which we vainly try to capture with our tired but indispensable word, love. What is joy? Joy is that inner delight that comes from being in relationship to the most joyful being in the universe who gives us gifts and does great things. But there's another aspect of joy, another source of it. It's not only because we're in relationship with the most joyous being, it's also because we're in relationship with the most powerful being. The psalm begins with the psalmist saying, Lord, you have restored our fortunes. And then in verse 4, he, said, he prays, Lord, restore our fortunes again. That's an interesting phrase. It's actually the translators are anticipating the historical background of the psalm, which we'll get to in a minute. But what I want you to hear is that the literal reading of the Hebrew there, it literally says, Lord, turn our turns. The first verse, the Lord has turned our turns. The point is, joy comes from being in relationship with the joy giver, 
Joy also comes from being in relationship with the one who can turn our turns. Who has our life in his control. Joy means being able to place our hands in God's hands for his control. So let's go back to that beach, shall we? Joy is knowing that the Lord holds our lives in his hands. Let's go back to Port Elizabeth Beach. Let's sit down. You and I are watching the waves come in, out, in, out. And all of a sudden, I, I say to you, hey, let's start counting the waves, okay? Let's count them. And then I say, the third wave that comes in, I'm going to sell it to you. How much will you give me? What would you say? Yeah, no. Why? Because you can't capture a wave. You can't, like, get a wave and put it in a box and say, here, how much will you give me? Waves are uncontrollable. Stay with me. Your life is a wave. It's one wave after the other, after the other, after the other. And what we often do is look for the waves to give us joy. A wave comes in, our career. We think, ah, that will give us joy. But your career is already going out. You know that, right? Your career is already going out. Or we, we often put so much joy into our appearance and how we look and what kind of shape we're in. I hate to tell you, but your joy is already going out. We put it into our kids. We put it into our marriage. We put it into our friendships. All of those are waves that are going out. You can't keep them. Just, you can't box a wave up. You can't keep those waves of your life. And, and there's one wave. There's the last wave. Death. What are you going to do about that wave? We can't hold them. What we need is a rock that withstands the waves of our lives and holding on to that rock can give us life. Paul put it this way, I reckon that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us as the children of God. Jesus promises us a place in His eternal kingdom, which is a joy so stunning that if we felt any of it now, that full joy, we would come undone. That's what holds us in the waves of life. Joy is being in relationship with the joy giver. And joy is being in relationship with the one who's stronger than the waves. But I need a little more. How about you? I need to know where to buy a pound of it. Where does joy really come from? The psalmist is masterful in his poetry. Because if you go back and look, here's verses 1 and 2. All of the verbs in verses 1 and 2 are in the past tense. Which means that joy comes from our past. There's a historical background. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. He's referring to a specific moment in Israel's history when in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great, whom Jeremiah the prophet called God's hammer, <laughs> Cyrus came in and he devastated the Babylonian Empire and took them out. Babylon fell. And Cyrus the Great rose to power, world empire, but God put a favor in Cyrus's heart 
toward the people of Israel. And he allowed them to start coming back in waves to rebuild Jerusalem. And they rebuilt the infrastructure and they rebuilt the economy and they rebuilt, most of all, the worshiping community. And it was like a dream coming true, like a dream for Israel. We get a glimpse of it in Ezra chapter 3. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this new temple being laid. By the way, some of those stones still standing today. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. In fact, if you read the Ezra-Nehemiah story in the Old Testament, it was not only heard far away, the surrounding nations were hearing about this joy in Jerusalem and they, let's just say, weren't thrilled about what was happening. You see, they became... Israel became so filled with joy because they remembered the past, that God had delivered them from Egypt in the Exodus, that God had delivered them after the exile from Babylonian. Past events produce present joy. So for us today, sitting here, past events, that cross where Jesus died to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that cross is source of present joy, that past resurrection that Jesus walked out of his own grave by his own power after three days, that is source for present joy. Past events producing present joy, and that present joy expressed becomes a neighboring joy where people around you begin to see it. You see, each of us has those big gifts in our life, the big gifts of the cross, the big gifts of the resurrection. But the way that we, and Waterstone is so good at this, you are so good at this, the way typically you invite people in to see the big gifts, like the cross and the resurrection, is you invite them into your small gifts, your passions, your hobbies, your neighborhood parties, your, your, invita- your risky invitation to invite them to our church picnic. You start with the small gifts and you get people involved in your life, you get them into your house, into your world, and then you expose them to the big gifts. Fill us with joy. And we welcome others into those gifts through that neighboring joy of our sharing our small gifts with them. But you know, it happens on an individual level. It also happens on a congregational level. Do you know what it's called when a church becomes so full of the joy of the Lord that it begins to leak out and overflow to all our neighbors? Revival. I'm a student of revival. One of my favorites happened in the country, the small country of Wales. 1904 to 19, or I'm sorry, yeah, 1904 to 1906. It began with a college student named Evan Roberts. He went to a church service, probably anything like this, one Sunday, and the pastor prayed over his congregation that their wills would be bent to the Father's will. Well, as we encourage you to do, Evan Roberts made that a personal prayer, and he prayed, Father, bend my will to your will. And as soon as he prayed that, the heavens opened, a burden came down, and he began to be extremely burdened for his hometown in Moriah, Wales. And he dropped out of school, and he moved back home, and he called what he called a meeting. Five people showed up, young people. By the way, two common features in revival. One, it typically starts with the young. Two, it always has preceding prayer, sometimes years of prayer. 
before anything bursts. First night, five people came. But the heavens opened. They all decided something's here. In fact, it's funny to hear Evan talk about it. He says, I, I'm not a polished speaker. So what we did was sing a couple songs, and then we read a lot of scripture. And then I said a few words. They did it the next night. More people came. They did it the next night. More people came. In a three-year period, there was not one night where there was not a meeting held in the country of Wales. And over a three-year period, 100,000 people made a profession of faith in Jesus. 100,000. What's really interesting is to read the stories of the social impact that the neighboring joy had. There are stories told of bars that had to close for lack of business. And from that money that was saved there, some of the first nonprofit orphanages were started in the country of Wales. It's funny to read the stories of judges who had to take on part-time jobs because the courtrooms were empty. It's very interesting to read the life of the miners who would begin each day way down in the ground in the dark reading scripture with their headlamps. The only people who did not like, or the only beasts that did not like what was going on were the mules because they could no longer understand the commands of the miners because of the lack of curse words. Waterstone. If we can convince people that we are on to something that's full of joy, they'll stampede one another to follow us to that source. Do you believe that? Joy comes from remembering the past, the cross, the resurrection, the big gifts, but seeing so full of joy from the big gifts that it becomes a neighboring joy through our lives and through our church. But there's another source. Where else do we get it? We not only get it from the past, we get it from the future. In verses 4 through 6, we read, Restore our fortunes, Lord. There's the prayer. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And then you have this great parallelism, which parallelism in the Psalms is always to get you to stop and think. Slow down. Soak it up. I'm going to say it twice so you hear it. Streams in the Negev, sow and reap. Two metaphors. What do they mean? Negev is a desert south of Israel. It's full of ditches and gullies caused by wind and erosion and baked dry in the sun. But every now and then in the Negev, there's a rain shower that comes. And overnight, the desert can be transformed into the Denver Botanical Gardens. It's absolutely incredible. We, we have a phenomenon in the United States called Death Valley in California. Have you heard of the super bloom? Every couple of years, if the moisture's right and the winds are right, this happens in Death Valley. The point the psalmist is trying to say is that most of our lives while we're on this road trip, waiting to go home, trying to get back home, most of our lives it's going to be Death Valley normal. But every once in a while, there's going to be a super bloom. 
And we'll get glimpses of the kingdom, glimpses of God's power, glimpses of God's mercy, glimpses of how he transforms lives, glimpses of what he wants to do in the future, glimpses when we begin to see that every valley is going to be filled and every highway made straight. We get super blooms now until the final bloom. And then he talks about sowing and reaping. He says, because in this time, while we wait to go home and work to go home, we still sow and reap, but sometimes we sow in tears. But those tears of disappointment, those tears of death, those tears of suffering are seeds that God will grow in and we will reap joy one day. Sowing and reaping. Now, we long for the super blooms. Now, we sow in tears, but one day, the final bloom will come when Jesus returns and makes all things new so all of this gets to this i want to share this with you it's the worst sermon illustration i've ever given i did it in the 90s i got letters i did it into 2000s i got emails get ready it's not original with me i actually heard it from the jesuits down at sacred heart retreat center in sedalia decades ago during a mass the monk said this is joy. It's a monk running, being chased by a tiger. Run, run, run. Gets to the edge of a cliff, 500 foot drop. Tiger chasing. He sees a branch out of the cliff, a rope hanging down, works his way out in the branch, hanging on the rope. The tiger chasing him, 500 foot drop. He sees two mice come out on the branch and start gnawing at the rope. His past is catching up with him. His future is death. His time's running out. He looks. He sees a strawberry growing out of the side of the cliff. A, a, a fully formed, red, delicious-looking strawberry. He picks it. He eats it. He says, that is the best strawberry I've ever had in my life. Larry, you're an idiot. <laughs> what in the world? Anxious about his past. Worried about his future. He fought for the joy. He fought for the joy. In this life, we get the big gifts and we have neighboring joy, neighboring joy, but also in this life, we will have stretches where we have to fight for the joy. Consider how Jesus did it. He was stripped of his glory. He came down. He tasted death for every person. But until that moment came, the father said to his son, I want you to show them the kingdom. Show them what it's like to live under my rule and my reign. And so I imagine... That when Jesus heard a joke, especially if it was told by a child, he laughed loudly. And I imagine that when someone told Jesus their story, he listened intently. Well, because he wrote it. And I imagine that when Jesus ate a meal, he savored the food. 
and especially was joyful with the conversation around it. And I imagine that when Jesus saw someone who was injured or mentally ill or struggling with life, he did everything he could to live in their shoes for a moment. And I imagine that when Jesus preached a sermon, he was passionate because he knew his words could change lives inside out. And then when that time come, when the father says to his son, son, today is the day, Jesus poured his heart out. He picked up his cross. He was faithful unto death. A death that swallows death in victory. And there, is the joy. Fight for it. Fight for it. George Whitfield was 25 years old when he preached this sermon in Boston and revival broke out. You know, we all think it was Washington and Franklin and Jefferson that were responsible for the Judeo-Christian ethic that our country's roots are planted in, it was not. It was Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. It's estimated that 80% of the colonists in the mid to late 1700s heard George Whitfield speak. 80%. Revival. We know it as the Great Awakening. One time George Whitfield ended a sermon this way, and I'd like to end this sermon with you this way. And I would like you to do as Evan Roberts did, is not just have this be a red prayer, but have this be your prayer. Oh, my dear friends, these are matters of eternal moment. I did not come to tickle your ears. If I had a mind to do so, I would play the orator. No, but I came, if God should be pleased, to touch your hearts. What shall I say to you? Open the door of your heart that the King of glory, the blessed Jesus, may come in and erect his kingdom in your soul. Make room for Christ. The Lord desires to sup with you tonight. Christ is willing to come into any of your hearts that will be pleased to open and receive him. Will you make room in your hearts for Jesus to bring you joy? Take just a moment. Share your heart with him. Maybe some of you have never done anything like this before. Maybe some of you need to say, Jesus, I want to believe in you. Show me who you are. Surprise me, as C.S. Lewis surprise me by joy. Maybe that's our prayer. Surprise me by joy. Well, we said earlier, we saved a couple of songs to sing. Let's sing like those old farts at the Rockies game. Head back, giving it everything like it really means something to you. Let's sing. Let's stand.